these things in Jesus' good, good name. Amen. Well, this morning, as we turn to the Word, as we turn to the Bible, we're in the second half of John chapter 5. So I will uh, invite you to open up there. You want to grab a Bible or open it up on an app or something. Uh, It's a longer passage this morning, which means not all of the words will wind up on the screen below me or beside me or around me. So you may want to have the text in front of you to follow along and and circle some things, highlight some things, and uh, and, uh, make some notes in the margins, that sort of idea. If you were with us last week, we did the first half of John chapter 5, or so, first chunk of John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, and we saw uh, Jesus coming into Jerusalem for a feast, for a festival, and he met a man who was described as being an invalid, probably paralyzed, and the man had been paralyzed for about 38 years, and he looked at him, and he healed him just by speaking, and he said, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. We read that in verse 11. And after 38 years, the man did exactly that. There was no rehab. There was no physio appointments. There were no braces or walker or cane. Complete healing in an instant. We're then told that Jesus did this on the Sabbath and that Jesus tended to do things like this on the Sabbath. And that made the religious establishment angry. They came to Jesus, and verse 16 tells us they began to persecute him. And then Jesus wraps up that interaction that we looked at last week with these verses, and we'll start here today in verses 17 and 18, where he says, Listen, my father is working until now, and so I am also working. And John gives us this sort of editorial note for verse 18 and says, That's why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus is showing through his words and his works that he has power and authority, the same authority as God has. And so the rest of this chapter, John is going to uh, explain these things. And Jesus is, is it's, it's kind of a long dialogue of his. And he's going to explain to us as he responds to this Jewish outrage. He's going to say uh, why he has the authority. And then he's going to give us proofs for his authority. And so that's the big idea for this morning. That Jesus' authority comes from his deity. That Jesus is actually God. And here's the proof. So let's jump in. I'll start reading for us uh, again at verse 18. I'll read through verse 29. Again, John starts this little section with the editorial note. This is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that Son, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these he will show you, so you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son will give life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. These verses started with the religious leaders wanting to kill Jesus because he said, I am God. There's a a ton in that passage and we're going to try and hit most of the high points there. But the religious leaders, they got their response to Jesus wrong but they absolutely understood what Jesus was saying. They heard what Jesus said and said, we need to get rid of this guy. They wanted to kill him for his blasphemy, for making himself equal with God. So their response was wrong, but they absolutely knew what Jesus was saying. Something that's come up in in recent uh, years and and maybe decades with respect to uh, people criticizing the Bible, criticizing Christianity, skeptics have said that, you know what, Jesus never actually claimed to be God. And maybe if we read the text, we don't actually see Jesus in his own words saying, I am God, or however directly you want him to say that, to say, no, Jesus did think he was God. Passages like this directly refute that claim. Sure, maybe Jesus didn't say it in clear English like we'd like it to say, but obviously he stirred up the Jews, the religious leaders, enough that they understood him to say, I am God. And he got himself killed for it. And so in the verses we just read, uh, we just read, we see Jesus demonstrate for us his authority and his deity that he was God in at least three ways. First, he describes for us that that Jesus can do what only God can do. Again, the section starts with Jesus saying that that he only does what he sees the Father doing. I like how one commentator sort of took that and unpacked it in a little bit more modern language. He says this, Jesus isn't some trust fund kid trying to distance himself from his father. He's not the black sheep trying to go off and make a name for himself. He's not the type A firstborn trying to outdo his dad and make it on his own. No, Jesus is perfectly in sync with the Father. He's not some second God coming to steal the worship and adoration that belongs only to God. He is the true God, and he and the Father are one. What that means is to worship God is to worship Jesus, and to worship Jesus is to worship God. Jesus demonstrates this by by pointing out some of the things in the passage we read that that only God can do. He talks about giving life in verse 21. He talks about judging humankind in verse 22. He talks about raising the dead to life. And ultimately, as we're going to see through the rest of the gospel, he will himself raise from the dead. I love how Jesus says in this passage, I'm going I'm to do these things and you will be amazed. You will continue to marvel at them. But you're not just going to marvel at them and I'm not just doing them because they're really cool tricks, but they will leave you with only two choices, to either follow me as God or to continue to wallow in your own religion. 
there's a bit of a second consequence here as well if Jesus can do what only God can do. Is that if we, as Jesus says multiple times, if, if Jesus is only doing what he sees the Father do, if he, is, if he is doing the work on the Sabbath that he sees the Father doing on the Sabbath, then what we see in Jesus is what we get from the Father as well. Now, there are, there are plenty of reasons why people may have a, a negative reaction to, to us describing God as Father. Many of them are uh, worthwhile reasons. Whether it's a, a, a mental image that's been built into you of, of just the harsh, judgmental God, whether it's the picture of just some angry old man with a lightning bolt in his hand just waiting to smite you if you do something wrong, whether it's, it's taking a poor relationship with our earthly father and then projecting that on our heavenly father, there are good reasons why we can have a negative view of God as father. But generally, our view of Jesus is, is much better. It's much more positive. Maybe not great, but it, it is much more positive. And so I think we need to key on this and remember this. Jesus actually reveals the Father. What, what we see in Jesus, the way he treats people, the way he, he acts, the way he gets upset about certain things, and the way he gives so much grace to, to other people and other things, that is, is perfectly reflecting the Father to us. In not so long, in John chapter 14, Jesus will say, if anyone has seen me, they have seen the Father. And so this passage, among others as well, is a, it's a revelation path, passage in that God is being revealed to us in Jesus. So the first thing, Jesus does what only God can do. The second way Jesus reveals his authority and his deity to us is that he receives and accepts for himself the honor that only God deserves. Let me show you what I mean here. Let's compare two passages. The first is from Isaiah 48. This is God speaking. And God says, For my own sake, for my own sake I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? My glory, my honor, I will not give to another. See, God is, God is, is jealous in a good way, not in the, the envious bad way, but God is, is jealous and protective of his own name. God deserves honor and glory, and his name deserves honor and glory, and so he is jealous and protective of that and says, this is proper it's not like God just needs us to, to honor him so we pump up his tires and give him a pat on the back. He's, he's not some like, uh, like me that needs to be encouraged to keep things going well or whatever, right? God, God is jealous in the right good way for his name. And so he will not share the glory and honor that is rightly due to him with anyone else. But look again at verse 23. Jesus says that, I'm going to do these things so that you may honor the Son just as you honor the Father. The same way, the same honor, the same glory you give to the Father, you can give to me, he says. He goes on and says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He's saying that since he and the Father are one, to reject Jesus is to reject the Father. He is tying his own authority directly to the authority of who? 
God himself. Imagine the picture here. The Jewish leaders, the religious leaders, they're upset. We've been told that they're they're starting to try and find a way to kill Jesus for the things he's saying, and he comes out and he says this. These religious leaders, the, the Jews of the day, they were zealously monotheistic. There is only one God. And Jesus looks at them and says, if you reject me, all of your religion, all of your piety, all of your supposed submission to that God that you so zealously defend is worth nothing. This is one of the the central core teachings of Christianity, that Jesus is at the center of God-pleasing worship. That's why we can say that, that Christianity, and we have said and we'll continue to say, Christianity is the most inclusive religion in the world. Jesus came for everyone, for the whole world. But yet, at the same time, we can say that Christianity is the most exclusive religion in the world because you have to go through Jesus. Jesus came for everyone, but you can't reject him and get there the same way. You have to acknowledge, again, that Jesus is going to say a little bit later that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Our society here in the West is one that claims to hold tolerance as one of its greatest, if not its greatest, values and virtues. And I'm deliberately suggesting that our our society claims to hold tolerance as the greatest value because, as you know, words have meaning. And so we need to be clear what we're talking about when we are saying tolerance. If we open up a dictionary and read what it says about tolerance, if we're defining tolerance in the true way, meaning everyone has the right to choose what to believe, then yes, we agree with that. We should all aspire to that. As Christians, we should support this kind of tolerance because no one should be forced into a set of beliefs. You are welcome to believe whatever you want even if it's something ridiculous. I was trying to chase down a quote. It was maybe Voltaire. It was maybe someone else who was quoting Voltaire. who said, you know what? I will defend to the death your right to say whatever you want. But here's the thing. If tolerance, tolerance means that we need to hold every belief system as equally valid and equally true, that's something completely different. That's actually not tolerance. It is intolerance because every belief system cannot be at the same time equally valid and equally true. There cannot be at the same time one God, millions of gods, and no God. It's just logically incoherent. And so as Christians, we believe that every person has the right to believe whatever they want, but we also believe that there is only one thing that is true, that Jesus is God, and that affects everything. And our job as Christians is not just to hold that position, but if we really believe that, and if we really understand the implications of that, then it's our job to both understand and declare that position and pray and pray and pray that the Holy Spirit would help uh, people come to that same conclusion in their own minds, using us, using our words, using God's word. So what does it look like to honor Jesus if we're to honor the Son as we honor the Father. 
Well, I think for a start, it looks like verse 24, that we hear his word and believe him. Matt Carter, again, helpfully writes, any talk of obeying God or following God or pleasing him is empty and meaningless until you've accepted the sacrifice of Jesus on your behalf. It's easy to think about Jesus and say things like, well, I I really respect him. I think he's pretty cool. He says some really great things. But think about those statements from God's perspective, he says. God made you, but you rebelled against him. And instead of punishing you, God put into motion a plan to rescue you. And this plan required his son to be born as a man, live a perfect life, and then die a horrible death so that you and I can be forgiven and freed. And we hear all this and we think, wow, I really respect Jesus. God didn't send his son to die so that we would respect Jesus. He sent his son to die so that we would throw ourselves at his feet and ask him to rescue us. God's not after respect, Carter says. God is after you. He says anything short of coming to faith in Jesus to save you amounts to disrespect. The only way to honor God is to embrace the gift of mercy and forgiveness that Jesus won for you and for me on the cross. So Jesus steps into and demonstrates his authority and his deity by receiving and claiming the honor for himself that only God deserves. Thirdly, Jesus has power that only God can claim. In the last part of the section that we read, Jesus says that he has power over our eternal destinies as well. He's he's the one that came to give and does give salvation. He's talking about uh, salvation and life right now in verse 25. He's saying the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He's talking about the spiritually dead coming to life. And we we saw this uh, in the Samaritan village in chapter 4 where they heard Jesus' words of life and they, they changed completely. But then he talks about a point in the future as well in verse 28 and 29 and says that the dead from the tombs will be raised and, and brought to eternal life or eternal judgment because, as verse 26 says, the Son gives life. Now that is a lot to take in and we'll continue to dig into that as we soldier on through the gospel. But remember, In the verses just before this passage, last week's passage, Jesus told a lame man to get up, and he did. And now here he's saying, you know what? That was just a taste. I can say the exact same thing to someone who is dead and in the ground, and the response will be the same. It's a little hint for chapter 11 coming up. Kent Hughes Another commentator writes, a bugler could stand at the edge of a graveyard and play, but nothing would happen. He could travel to the greatest of our national cemeteries where military men, noted for their obedience throughout their life, lie buried. And no matter how well or loudly he played, nothing would happen. He says, those dead men need a far greater authority to bring them to life, and that authority is the voice of Jesus Christ. Verse 27 gives us one last reminder here of Jesus' authority as he describes himself as the Son of Man. Now again, remember who Jesus is talking to here. 
The religious leaders, when they heard him say the Son of Man, they would have known exactly what he was talking about. They would have instantly thought back to Daniel chapter 7, where Daniel has this vision of one like a Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Daniel 7 verse 13. And Jesus is, is taking this title onto himself. He's saying, Daniel talked about me. Daniel saw me coming. I am that son of man. I'm the one that's been given a dominion and glory and a kingdom. I'm the one that who, who will be served by all people and nations and languages. I'm the one who is, who is ushering in a kingdom that's everlasting, that will never pass away and never be destroyed. The story of the Gospels is that this king has come. And the ultimate question for us, for them, that we have to rask and wrestle with is, will we obey? Will will you and I submit to Jesus' authority? Will we seek to bring every area of our lives under his authority and not just the ones that are convenient for us? Will we allow Jesus' teaching, his work, and his authority affect how we talk to our spouses, how we discipline our kids, how we think about things like work and hobbies and sex and money and time and criticism and inconvenience and suffering and everything else? As Christians, we confess or we pledge our allegiance to Jesus as Lord, And that means we are committed to striving and trying and working at bringing every area of our lives under his authority. So Jesus does what only God can do. Jesus receives honor that only God deserves. And Jesus has power that only God can claim. Now, if Jesus was just kind of some guy walking around and saying these things, would it be wise for us to drop everything and submit to him? Maybe not. But if Jesus is God and he can back up these claims, then we can't spend too much time or attention digging into all the implications of that. C.S. Lewis uh, back in the day, was writing to a friend who had rejected Jesus and walked away from the church. And he said this, If Jesus was not God, who or what was he? The the doctrine or the understanding uh, of Christ's divinity seems to me to not be something stuck on. It's not something that the church added later on, but it's something that peeps out at every point of the New Testament. And so if you want to get rid of that, you have to unravel the whole web. And if you take the Godhead of Christ away, he says, what is Christianity all about? The answer, of course, is nothing. Without Jesus being God, our entire faith falls apart. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. If, if Jesus isn't God, if he didn't do what he said he did, if he didn't uh, live the life and, and die the death and was raised from the dead that, that we claim he did, we as followers of Jesus, we as Christians are to be pitied above all other people. And so in, in this next section of verses, Jesus seems to anticipate the pushback of, well, great, you can say these things about yourselves, but let's, you know, let's see what's actually here. And in these next verses, he presents four witnesses to back up his words and really leaves us no excuse for rejecting him. 
He knew that, that the, the testimony didn't count in court until you had at least two other witnesses, so he gives us four. As we keep reading in verse 30 and 31, we see that Jesus reminds us one more time that he's, he's just doing the work he saw the Father do. He's, he's kind of sending us back to verse 17. And then he, as I've said, he reminds the listeners that in order for something to be true, it must be validated by the testimony of other witnesses. So here's Jesus' witness list. First, John the Baptist, verses 35, or 33 to 35. Jesus says, you, talking to the religious leaders, you sent to John, and he is borne witness to the truth. That's key for us. It's not that the testimony that I receive, he's saying, I don't need man's witness, but I say these things so that you might be saved, that you might recognize who he was and what he said. And Jesus says of John, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now, we as readers were introduced to John back in chapter 1, John the Baptist in chapter 1. And here's the witness that John the Baptist gave, that he, what he spoke of Jesus. Back in chapter 1, verse 32. He said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on Jesus. He said, I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so John says, I have seen and I've borne witness that this, that Jesus is the Son of God. John was convinced Jesus was the Messiah and he told people about it. Now, in the, in the early stages of John's ministry, the religious leaders liked this message that the long-awaited messianic age was about to start, that the Messiah was coming, and, and Jesus points to this to them, right? In verse 33, he says, you sent messengers to go see John, to check him out. In verse 35, you rejoiced in this light he was bringing for a little while. They liked the message, but when they saw Jesus, their opinions changed. They didn't like that message quite so much. They expected the war horse to come and overthrow Rome and make, make Israel great again. But instead, they saw Jesus overthrowing tables in the temple and pointing out their hypocrisy. Jesus describes John as a lamp, which gives us today as well some practical implications. Like a lamp, you and I too, we need to be lit or ignited. We don't do a whole lot of camping in our family, but we've got one of those Coleman lamps, you know, the ones that they've got the little baskets on and you screw the propane tank on the bottom. And then you, uh, so you turn the gas on, you can hear it hiss so you know something's happening and then you've got to stick a match up there or a lighter in there or something and poof, it lights. We need that ourselves as well. We need God to ignite our witness. We need to continue to, to pray and ask him to, to explode the light in us so that our light would go out and our witness would go out. The other implication of John as the lamp or John as a light is that what, what does a lamp do? It lights the way, it, it points the way, it guides. It's not the destination though and it's not the center of attention. See, our job, much like John's, is to make much of Jesus, not of ourselves. And John, as well, as a good witness, like a lamp, like a candle, he starts to dim. He burns out and he moves out of the way for Jesus. Witness number one was John the Baptist. The second was witness that Jesus calls is 
actually his own works in verse 36. If the religious leaders were going to change their minds about what John had said, what about the, the works, the things that they were seeing Jesus do? Now we know, as we've read through the, the text here, back in chapter 3, we know that, that Nicodemus, one of the teachers of the law, maybe one of the greatest teachers in Jerusalem, came to Jesus at least partly motivated by the works Jesus was doing. John 3, verse 2, the, we read that the man came to Jesus, Nicodemus came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. They're trying to piece together who he is and what this all means. And he says, look at this, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Something's not right here, Jesus. This is outside of what I'm understanding. These signs are something. The things that Jesus was doing, even what we just saw him do in the last, uh, the last section, the beginning of this chapter, they cannot be explained by natural causes. Something supernatural or more than natural, beyond natural, is going on here. And we're going to see this again for the next few weeks as well. A bit later, even in chapter 7, the, the crowds understand that, that when the Messiah comes, when this promised one comes, he will do amazing things. He will he will. Uh, testify to himself. He will justify himself by the signs and the miracles he do. And they ask this, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this Jesus has done? You've probably heard the saying, if it walks like a duck and quacks like a duck, it must be a duck. That's what they're saying here in this verse. With as much honor and respect to Jesus, using a duck metaphor as I can give. See, no natural human can do the things that Jesus was doing. Jesus is the Messiah. He is God. And as we've seen and as we will continue to see, Jesus is really deliberate in the things that he does. He's not just performing party tricks like turning water into wine just to have a better party, but he's using these miracles and these signs to show that that the old religion, the, the, the water in those purification jugs, it's finished and something new and something so much better is here. Jesus isn't just motivated by helping people and making them physically whole like he did in the beginning of this chapter, but he is using these miracles as signposts pointing to who he is and what he's ultimately come for, and that's our spiritual care. That's for rescuing us from uh, the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of light. And so our first two witnesses, John's words, Jesus works Witness number three is scripture itself. Jump down to verse 39, where Jesus says to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's them that bear witness about me. Jesus is almost encouraging here to them. He acknowledges their their devotion to scripture, their devotion to the Old Testament, that they're diligently searching for this one that God has promised, but they missed that it's actually Jesus. I love how, again, Matt Carter points out that the whole Old Testament can be boiled down into two themes. The first is that humankind is hopelessly rebellious and and unable to save ourselves. He says, think about our heroes from the Old Testament. Noah, after the flood, after things had landed, he landed the ark, he got out, they made a meal, he got drunk and got naked. Abraham, the father of the Jews, didn't trust God enough to wait for a son with Sarah. Moses 
was called to lead the people out of Egypt. And remember how he responded when God said, I've got this great work for you to do. You've been, you've been tested in the desert for 40 years. It's time for you to step back in. And he says, I'm not a very good speaker. You can't send me. And then God relents, concedes, gives them Aaron to go, and they lead the people out of Egypt, seeing all the things. And he didn't get to enter the promised land because he complained and was disobedient. David, King David, the one described as a man after God's own heart, committed adultery and tried to cover that up with murder. Why does the Old Testament kind of air this dirty laundry for us? Because it shows us that even the ones we look up to, even maybe the greatest among us, are hopelessly in need of a Savior. Fortunately, the second thing that runs throughout the whole Old Testament is that God will send a Savior. He's going to send the promised one. Genesis 3.15, we start reading about this. He's going to send the Lion of Judah, the Son of Man, the Suffering Servant, the Passover Lamb, and the Messiah. The whole weight of the Old Testament points to Jesus. And the leaders of the day, they'd missed that. So we've got John's words, Jesus' works, Scripture itself, and for his last witness, Jesus calls God the Father. Verse 37, Jesus says, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Again, there's, there's a lot of meat in there, and Jesus is going to unpack more of these verses as we continue to go forward. Here's the thing. The, the only way you and I can know God is if God chooses to reveal himself to us. And fortunately, verse after verse in the Bible describes God doing just that. Again, look at the Old Testament. God uses his messengers, the prophets. God uses his works. Remember the psalmist wrote, the heavens declare. You know, the, 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 the sun rises and it shows me who you are. All these things, the, the, the universe cries out for a creator. And God also uses his word to reveal himself. Look at what Jesus just used as evidence. John, a prophet, his works, and God's word. As one writer concludes, in the same way and manner that God reveals himself to mankind, Jesus reveals his deity to man. To doubt the claims of Jesus is to disregard God's revelation about himself. Just like the leaders, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, you and I are separated from God by our sin, by our rebellion, by our, our wanting to live under our own authority instead of his. If we deny that Jesus is God, then we are effectively setting ourselves up as little gods who are greater than that one true God. And that's a big, big problem. Because here's where you and I are left if Jesus is not God. Then he couldn't have come and paid the penalty for sin. We wouldn't be able to cling to his good works, and we would be left without hope. This isn't a, a small question. Life and eternity are at stake here. And Jesus is God, and is our foundation and our hope. Let me pray. Jesus, I pray that you would continue to reveal yourself to us. I pray that you would 
ignite in us a passion to know you more, to aim for that abiding relationship that you'll come and, and talk more about in the coming verses and weeks and, and chapters that we're going to look through here. I pray that you would guard us from falling into indifference or apathy when it comes to our relationship with you or our understanding of your deity. Help us to know you. I, I pray that you would show in our lives, uh, in each of our lives, the, the distractions that are pulling us away from you. Help us to deal with those and help us to know you more. And we pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Arnie's going to lead us in a couple of